Hey, I'm Nikki. And I'm Emily. And welcome to That Six Letter Word, a podcast about being 20-something and living with that six-letter word that no one wants to hear, cancer. We are two friends that have lived and are living with this diagnosis, and we have some similarities and many differences. We dive into our experiences as young women, patients, friends, and survivors. Our hope is that this podcast resonates with any person going through any challenge, not just cancer. And we're here to remind you that we're all just people taking life one step at a time and spreading joy as often as we can. Hey, Emily. Hey, Nikki. So welcome to episode one of That Six Letter Word, the podcast. So excited to get this off the ground. Me too. This is obviously we've been talking about it for a long time and we're in quarantine and we have so many big ideas and so I'm really excited to execute them. Oh yeah and so just to get a little taste of what we'll be talking about we'll go through my story, we'll go through Nikki's story, and we'll go through similarities, differences amongst a variety of topics, bring in some guests, get their thoughts and opinions, and just overall have a grand old time if anybody's listening. <laughs> exactly. And the whole thing is that we are both, we're now 25, but we're 20-somethings who happen to have been diagnosed with that six-letter word that no one wants to hear, cancer. And so we're excited to talk about it and bring it to a few more people and normalize it a little bit and hopefully provide some perspectives that we really couldn't find when we were going through it, it seems. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. kind of our goal, I think. Yeah. I think that sums it all up. So I guess, how was your week? Anything exciting? So I'm a homeowner, and one of the things that I've been doing in quarantine is just staring at my house (laughs) and finding flaws, and I need new furniture. I am out of college, and it still looks like I live in college um, with just mismatched furniture and everything, but this week, I actually contacted a a contractor to uh, do a roof patio for myself. Ooh. Yeah. I was not expecting that. Oh my God. Right? Right? How fun. Yeah. Well, my house has um, like reinforced roofing. So you could build a patio on it. The con or the builder didn't want to do that just with all the permitting and how long it took. But yeah. So I was like, hey, what the heck? Why not? We're all stuck. Yeah. We'll have like a dope house to live in. Yeah, exactly. And like the four to six months out of the year that it's actually nice to sit in Austin uh, outside. It'll be great. Yeah, that's totally worth it. Yeah. How was your week? It was good. I was on the houseboat in Kentucky with some friends. We basically drank beer and like floated and sat in the hot tub. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Just goofed around, ate so many hot dogs. I came home and I was like, (laughs) I need food that isn't beige. Like, that's yeah. all I need. <laughs> so I got a huge oh, salad, yeah. and I'm trying to recover. But, um, yeah, it was fun. That was about yeah. it. Now I'm prepping to go to Montana next week. So I... Oh, man, you're just a jet setter. Tell you what, man. I went on an REI bender today. It was pretty unnecessary. But 
I am who I am. So, <laughs> <laughs> so today we're doing your story and yes. I know you have, you know, some notes, you have some structure to it, but I guess mm-hmm. we'll start with, I don't know, go for it. I guess start with where it all started. Yeah. And maybe two sentences about who you are also, just since we're still introing ourselves. Yeah, of course. So my name is Emily Sweet. I am originally from Austin. Decided to go to the University of Michigan for my undergraduate degree and got an industrial and operations engineering degree there. Realized that I didn't like the snow and didn't like helping my roommates shovel out their cars with the (laughs) snow because I didn't have one up there. Um, But so decided to move back to Austin and I am currently working here and just living living my life but about almost two years ago to the date holy nuggets um I got diagnosed with brain cancer and so uh, the whole wild story of that I won't bore you with the with the beginning details but I have always experienced some debilitating migraines to the point where I'd have to miss school and now work. And I got one so badly that I decided I needed to go to a neurologist and be put on migraine medication because it was hindering my everyday life, it felt like. And my neurologist asked if I wanted an MRI. And I was like, what the heck? Like, should I get an MRI? You tell me. this is what you're paid for. (laughs) This is what I'm paying you for. Uh, And she said that she liked her migraine patients to get one in their lifetime. So I was like, what the heck? Seize the day, carpe diem, and get a brain MRI. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) And I got an MRI and first without contrast, and those results came back abnormal. And so she scheduled me for another one with contrast this time. And so the contrast is administered through an IV about halfway through your MRI scan. And it'll show any excess fluid that shouldn't be in your body or is in your body. Um, And I, there was a mass in my left frontal lobe, we found out. And so that was a whole whirlwind. So got my first MRI on Monday, found out there was a mass in my brain, um, confirmed mass in my brain on Wednesday. And that next week was one, I flew to Chicago to see my orientation friends. And that was a godsend because I needed something to take my mind off of there being a mass in my brain. But I got... or I was connected with the head of neurosurgery at MD Anderson in Houston. So I live in Austin. Houston's about like a three hour drive away. And I was set up for an appointment uh, that following Wednesday. So a week after I had confirmed the mass in my brain. And when I was talking with his nurse practitioner, she was telling me that the different neurosurgeons at MD Anderson specialize in different types of brain tumors. So it wasn't a guarantee that this neurosurgeon would even be my neurosurgeon. And so in my head, and I sent over my MRI images, well, actually my mom did, which (laughs) is a whole other story in and of itself. 
God by, bless CDs, man. Oh man, freaking disk <laughs> drives. Like who has a disk drive anymore? Literally, that's the craziest thing that they, yeah, that's so funny. They asked me to upload my MRI images via a disk drive to a portal link, like through a portal link. And <sighs> one had to go break out my old computer from high school and try and FaceTime talk my mom through how to upload them, but she's a godsend, whatever. <laughs> and so in my head, I wasn't thinking too much that this surgeon would be my actual neurosurgeon, that once we get there, or that once we got there, he would kind of pass me along to another surgeon. And it always in the back of my head, I had, a, I got a concussion my junior year of college and I had my mom kind of chirping in the background that it was just residual scar tissue. And I wanted to believe it was, but when we went to MD Anderson that Wednesday of my appointment, we had the first appointment of the day. So we got there at 8 a.m. and got put back into the consultation room, first explained my symptoms to the nurse practitioner and then to the head of neurosurgery, who did end up having to be my neurosurgeon. And he was the first person to use the word tumor with me. At this point, everybody else was calling it a mass or a lesion or an abnormality, a foreign object in my brain, the slew of inconclusive terms besides tumor. Yeah. Um, and of course, my, so I'm sitting in this small consultation room with my parents and myself and the nurse and the head of neurosurgery. And once he said the word tumor, it was the air in the room, even though there wasn't as much air in the room to begin with, it just got sucked out. And the first question I asked was, what will happen to my hair? Mm -hmm what will my hair look like, all this stuff. And he hadn't even said that we would need to go the chemo radiation or the surgical route. It was just tumor it, equals cancer. In your head. Yeah, tumor equals cancer. I was at MD Anderson, the, one of the top cancer centers in the US, nevertheless mm -hmm. world. And so in my head, I was like, oh, this is cancer. Mm -hmm. um, but moment. he, yeah, but he was very very respectful of my hair question. And he goes, well, we will have to surgically remove it. It looks to be about five centimeters by three centimeters long um, from the first MRI measurements. He goes, we don't know if this is cancerous yet. So we're going to hold on the chemo and radiation questions. Um, we won't have to go in and biopsy it a separate time like my neurologist had told me the week prior and just answered a ton of questions that my parents and I were throwing at him. Like, what, if this is cancerous, what do you think it is? Is there a chance of reoccurrence? Has it metastasized? All this other stuff. And one like interesting fact that I found out was brain cancer doesn't metastasize to other parts of the body. There's a less than 1% chance it's other cancers that will metastasize to the brain. Oh, so if you have breast cancer, 
you and it metastasized to your brain that's common or not common but it's not unheard of but I think it's a less than one or two percent chance that brain cancer will metastasize to other parts of your body. Did they ever think that maybe it was somewhere else and it had metastasized to your brain or did they were they confident that it was isolated there? No they were confident it was isolated there because Um, they it was exactly the spot that the type of tumor that I did end up having, which is a mouthful, it's oligodendroglioma, a a stage two slow growing cancer. Um, That's exactly what a tumor would look like. Mm -hmm. And so they, I got a CT scan um, right after I had it surgically removed, but it hadn't metastasized or wasn't elsewhere in my body. Yeah. But they did do like the double check just to make sure that it wasn't. Um, honestly, I don't even think if we asked that question, I mean, we may have, but my mind is so blank from that time. Oh, absolutely. I have so many people, questions people ask me and I'm like, I never thought to ask it. I don't know. Yeah. I was in a panic, but yeah. Yeah. And he was saying that he would make an appointment with a neuro oncologist on staff just in case it did come back cancerous and everything, but and he, he called it like an introduction. And in my head, I'm, oh, I'm meeting and greeting a, a neuro-oncologist. Are, over, are we going to do it over wine and cheese? What yeah. <laughs> it was dumb. But so we ended up, um, my neurosurgeon said that he had an opening in his surgical schedule a week from that Thursday. So just eight days out from that appointment or we could wait a month or even monitor it with MRI scans. And once it does show signs of regrowing, operate then. And at this point, I had been at Dell for a year and a half. I was a young adult in Austin. I had a whole group of new friends. I was incredibly single at this time, (laughs) like about as single as they come. Single as a single, baby. (laughs) So I was dabbling in the dating scene in Austin and I got, and I was 23 at the time and I was struck with that six letter word, even though it wasn't confirmed yet, but, um, but it was pretty apparent that it was. And so I chose to get it removed as soon as possible. So I opted for that eight days out surgery. And once I chose that, it kind of all flew by like that next week in a day flew by. Um, that weekend I crammed in as many moments as possible. At this point I'd gone on medical leave from work. Um, the doctor had told me that I'd be out of, he said, quote unquote, commission from work and any physical activity or anything of that sort. He said for, I think he said a month. And, and so in my head, I had told work, so it was the middle of October, I told work I'd be back December 1st. So just gave myself six weeks. And so that Thursday, October 18th, 2018 was my surgery day. Um, My doctor had said that it would be about a four to six hour surgery, just depending on the placement of my tumor and with the size of it. And one of the things that he did say 
was he he was pretty surprised that I had a I'd gotten an MRI in the first place. He was like, "What brought you in to get an MRI? How'd you find this? Most common symptom of this is a seizure." And he was like, and this is most commonly found in 40 to 60 year old men. And I had told him my migraine symptoms and I went and saw a neurologist and she ordered an MRI scan. And he said something along the lines, like that neurologist should like get an award or whatever. He goes, unfortunately, this isn't connected to your migraines. So you will be getting those, but it's incredible that you found this like before you had a seizure. Damn. Yeah. And so we were very thankful for that. Um, and then on the actual surgery day, so we got in, I had a check-in time of 5 a.m. or 5.30 a.m. for an 8 a.m. surgery. And I went in, like my parents were with me. We had spent the night, like the past two nights, because the day before I had to have like I think 13 pre-op appointments. It was something insane where we were just running all over MD Anderson and that campus is gigantic. Um, nevertheless, I had like these little like circles on my head, like fiducials to map my brain for the doctor to figure out his plan of attack. But so the day of surgery, it I got wheeled back, I think around 7, 7.15. And so my parents were in the waiting room. My brother and sister and brother-in-law had driven up and my sister-in-law and nephew were going to come up the following day, but it ended up being an eight hour surgery. Um, The tumor ended up being seven centimeters long versus the five that they thought it was. It intersected three blood vessels that they had to resect, which is what took so long. That's why they had to use the entire eight hours. But other than that, it was a complete success is what they were calling it. They call it a total resection. So they uh, know they didn't get every tumor cell, but they got the majority of it. And I was in ICU for two days and then in general for four. So in total, I was in the hospital and recovery for six days. Um, I had a gnarly... (laughs) And I have a gnarly scar that goes down the middle of my head and curves behind my left ear in the shape of an L. And I had over 70 surgical staples that I couldn't get wet for two weeks. So I was a giant grease ball in my hair, all my hair. And, and they took some of your hair out to make that happen. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they had to shave like right the length of... The scar. That whole L shape. That whole L shape. And my doctor had assured, assured me that it would grow back. Some of it has, some of it did not. So we have a bone to Classic. pick with them, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I have long blonde hair. And so seeing at least like a chunk of it come off when they were placing that fiducial on the top of my head, it was, it was a, a rough time. But I was in, when I was in the ICU, I guess the, right after I was coming out of recovery from surgery, I was talking fine. I mean, I was groggy, but about doing about as well as any person who had just gone, undergone major brain surgery could be expected to do. And the entire time that I 
went through all of my recovery and in the hospital and outside the hospital, my parents had told me that like, I'd never be alone, that they were always going to be there. And they a hundred percent stuck to that promise. Um, my mom and dad alternated different nights that they'd stay with me in the hospital. And my dad stayed with me that first night and then so on and so forth with my mom the next night. And for any of the of you who have stayed in the hospital or had any time in a hospital, you know they come in to take your vitals and draw your blood about every two hours, two to three hours. Um, I felt like my vitals were being taken every two hours. It was like, it was like I'd be done for two and then I'd have my vitals taken. And then an hour later, I'd come in and have like my blood drawn and I'd have five or six vials of blood drawn every time they come in. And it would just on that schedule the entire time, the entire six days that I was in there. Yeah, it really the worst. It, even in the middle of the night, my mom, I think, yelled at one of them one time. Really? Like, She's sleeping. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, thanks, mom. <laughs> oh, appreciate you. But, yeah. But I experienced, so that first day, I was fine. Well, about as fine as anybody could be. That next day, my dad ended up stubbing his toe and exclaimed, God damn it. And I repeated that over and over for at least an hour, hour and a half, maybe. And my dad, he was like, where's the off button? How do I get her to stop all this <laughs> stuff? But my brain had swollen so much like during the night and everything that I experienced some aphasia. And so aphasia is semi-mutism and it, it didn't affect any of my motor skills. Um, but where like the tumor was, it was growing back into my supplementary motor area. So it didn't affect my vision or my speech or any motor functions, those segments, but it did affect my supplementary motor function area, which is the processing center of the brain. It's the part that tells you to speak. It's the part that if somebody asks you to raise your arms and you raise them, it's because of that. It's the initiation of the movement. And I was experiencing swelling in my brain. And so it was affecting that supplementary motor area. And I was very prone to persuasion. I could only say yes or no, answer yes or no. I could read, um, but I couldn't form any thought relative to how I normally speak. And so that freaked my parents out so bad. There was one time where my dad pulled aside my neurosurgeon and was like, what are you doing? I've walked in with a fully functioning adult daughter and it's essentially, she's dependent on us now. And my neurosurgeon told my dad to get his act together and that it was common that there'd be obviously some swelling of the brain, but to just give it time. And so I met with a speech therapist about four times when I was in the hospital. Um, I met with an occupational therapist one time, but she checked off on all my motor function stuff. I had a ton of stories from my time in the hospital that I won't get into all of them, but one that I will mention is they have this beauty store or beauty salon, they call it in MD Anderson. 
And any person who's either undergoing treatment or has just gone through surgery can go and have their hair done at this salon. And they have wigs and hats and everything if you're, um, if you've lost your hair and just want to kind of get all dolled up um, with, with hair. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> make that statement. But so I went with my sister and my mom when I got my surgical bandages off. And remember, I have 70 surgical staples in my hair that I cannot get wet or anything, but this store knows how to handle all that. But as we were coming back up from the salon, we got off at a wrong, on the wrong floor. And I threw my hands into like the, to hold open the elevator doors because I was sitting in a wheelchair. My sister was wheeling me out. My mom was next to her. And they thought I was afraid of the bump of the elevator. They were like, no, it's okay. You're fine. You're fine. And in my head, I was thinking, no, you idiots. We are on the wrong floor. (laughs) This is not where we get off. (laughs) This is not where we, yeah, not where we get off. But I couldn't communicate that. And so my reaction was just to throw out my arms and stop. But obviously that did nothing for them. They were like, it's okay. (laughs) And wheeled me off. And then once they got off, they like realized we were not on the correct floor and they had a good chuckle out of it in my head like I told you so but obviously yeah. I didn't. um but so I got discharged on a Wednesday and I was coming back in a week on Halloween day of 2018 to get my surgical staples out I was living with my parents for that next month or so and over that week that I was between after being discharged and having to come back, we got results that the biopsy came back. It was a stage two oligodendroglioma. So when I came back that following week, I would have to meet with the neuro-oncologist and I essentially would be transferred over onto her services. And I was also on an incredibly high dose of steroids that I would slowly taper off of over the next four weeks, but I was, I experienced every side effect under the freaking sun with those mm-hmm. extreme anger. <laughs> that roid rage. Was, yeah. Roid rage is real. It is. And extreme hunger, not sleeping. I think I averaged about two to three hours of sleep a night and I caught up on, I watched the great British baking show at 2 AM. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's what got me into it. Um, but just a huge like moon face, extreme like facial bloating, um, acne all over my chest and my like chin and neck area to the point where it would hurt to even wear a shirt. Um, but thankfully that one went away, but I remember looking at my mom and I was like, I can't go out like this. <laughs> Don't make um, it. Yeah. And so we had that for about a week and then we went back to MD Anderson and I got the news that I'd be put on watch that they wanted to see how my brain would de-swell and just give my time, my brain enough time to heal and so they said that the brain takes about six to, six months to a year to heal fully. And one cool thing that I found out is the brain doesn't have pain receptors. And mm. so when you get a headache, it's not necessarily your brain hurting. It's just the different pain receptors around the brain that are signaling off or if you sprain your wrist, 
it's pain receptors going up to your brain to be like, ow, my wrist. Um, and so I didn't really experience, experience any horrible pain, thankfully, like not enough that would require medication. I could knock it out with a couple of Tylenol here and there, and it was good. But so my neuro-oncologist essentially put me on watch and she was like, we'll see you back in January. And at this point, um, then I got my surgical staples out. I could get my hair wet. I could <laughs> cover it up because I wasn't allowed to cover it up. I needed to let them breathe the, the week that I was out of the hospital, but I was rocking beanies and thank God it was November, December, January and Austin when I was rocking those beanies because it would be a bitch to rock in the summer. <laughs> yeah. I'm a sweaty person and that just yeah. isn't a great combination. Oh, the worst. <laughs> and so like after my appointment, went home, started speech therapy, started at three, ty- three days a week to work my way down to one, ended up moving out my start date from December 1st to mid-January just I wanted it after that next MD Anderson appointment. And then in, at my January appointment, they were saying that we can be, I can be put on watch that there isn't any scientific evidence that this type of tumor responds directly or there's no positive or negative impact with this type of tumor to do chemo and radiation right after surgery. So I was put on watch and in between that appointment and my next appointment, which I'm on, I'm still on this, but it's every three months I go and go to MD Anderson and get a checkup, which is like an MRI scan and then meeting with my doctors. Um, I went through fertility treatments because I knew at some point at my January appointment, um, I met with a fertility doctor that specializes in cancer, like women's cancers and everything that with the type of chemo that I would have to have, there was a certain percentage that I would go into early menopause. And so as I get older and I prolong chemo and radiation, the chances get greater. I think right now it's 30 to 40% with the type of chemo drugs that I'd be. And in two to three years, it's 50 then by 30, I think it's 60, 70% chance that I'd go into menopause. Wow. I didn't realize that it increased with age like that. Mm -hmm. I wonder if mine's that way. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know, but. That's such a tough thing to hear too. And you're like, you're like, I'm 24. I don't care, but like, I probably will. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Well, and my, so at the time, like my brother had a kid, my sister had just had a kid Um, so I was around babies because we all live in Austin and I was in my head I thought that I would I will one day want this and so I did it as an insurance policy Mm -hmm. and so I went through all of the fertility treatments shot myself with fertility drugs the whole gambit I know we'll have a conversation on this in the future but ended up getting uh, I think it was 20 27 eggs that were extracted. Four of them were immature. Three of them didn't make the transit from the facility to the cryobank um, and ended up getting overactive ovaries. So every step I took, it was so painful. And 
every bump in the car. It was, it was not pleasant, but. That was all post-op? That was all post um, extraction. Like the, the extraction surgery? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was put on antibiotics and all of this stuff, but. So I didn't have the best post experience, but mm-hmm. I don't know anything for that insurance policy. <laughs> it's a good one to have, man. Oh yeah. As we've said, the worst case is that we both have all of our babies that are on ice and then we get our own TLC show. Okay. Yeah, own TLC. This is <laughs> like spoiler alert, but I plus also 40. From, yeah, literally. Plus 40 spo- to 90, depending on if there are multiples. <laughs> <laughs> we have all triplets. Oh my God, could you imagine? spoiler alert I also froze my eggs but yeah (laughs) oh my gosh how long did those like symptoms go on for after the surgery about 10 days I also looked like I was pregnant and my doctor told me that if I because I had to you have to inject yourself with the what is the eight like the hormones like the growth hormones like about 36 hours before you get them extracted yeah. and he told me that if I took a pregnancy test within the next two weeks it would come back positive because I you're Ooh, injecting baby. yourself with that pregnancy hormone and at the time I was just newly dating this one guy and I was just like oh no oh, shit yeah 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 but um and that's a whole nother topic that we'll get yeah. into of like how do you tell somebody that oh. you're newly dating how do you deem them one worthy of getting that news? And then two, how do you tell them? Um, yeah, but yeah. yeah. And then I went on with like my appointment schedule. I mean, every three months, every three months. And then in November of last year, so of 2019, um, about a couple weeks after Nikki got her diagnosis, Spoiler, Nikki got her diagnosis in November. Hey. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> um, I had another follow-up appointment. It was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And I found out that I could potentially have to start chemo and radiation sooner than they thought because my brain was showing signs or my tumor was showing signs of regrowth significant enough to where they think they thought then would be the time to pull the trigger. Obviously I'm using past tense, so that did not happen. (laughs) Um, But I had to prepare my work, everything, myself, my family, my select friends that I let know about this. Um, But when I went back for my January the following year so January 2020 I should have known this is like all when like 2020 was gonna go to shit everything was gonna fall apart (laughs) (laughs) um but I they told me that I didn't have to have chemo and radiation and I of course asked why and they told me that from my November scan of which showed growth from my previous scans to this new scan, there was no growth. And I was obviously asked why. <laughs> and they were saying that their best guess was it was still my brain healing because the scan that they were comparing to was in the summer. And obviously the brain can heal up to a year, even more. And so they were just saying that it was healing. <laughs> And that it probably had like plateaued on like it was done healing and whatever. And they were also 
wanted to be cautious because there's a a, a set like a set maximum amount of or a set minimum amount of years that you can have radiation before you go and have it again. And so it's not an exact number or it just depends on how your body's going, what your body's going through or whatever. I'm probably explaining this terribly and probably wrong. Okay. We're doctors. It's fine. <laughs> you can trust us. <laughs> but that there's a lifespan of that. And then also the chemo drugs that they would be giving me were not typically in my demographic. They were used in 40 to 60 year old men because this was when they normally thought that this tumor or what they normally thought this tumor was present in and that they could date it back to when a 40 year old came in with a seizure, they could date back the growth of cells to 15 years before, so when they were 25. But with my tumor, with how big it was, it could have been growing since elementary, middle, high school. I could have been born with it. I could have gone in in college. They just didn't know. And they were very cognizant and they want to be cognizant of any adverse effects this might have on, on my long-term health. And, and they were also saying that do with the type of tumor that I have, it has a chance of coming back, if not once, more than once in my lifetime. And so they are also taking that into account. And they essentially told me, we're going to put you back on watch and we'll see you in three months. And I have took that as terrible news. I got angry and I had very different, a very different reaction than how my, what my parents were going through and experiencing at that time. I think in their mind, they were, they want to prolong the pain of their child and everything. And at that time, I don't think I understood that. I was just like, why aren't you like, why aren't you angry with me? Yeah. Cause in my mind, there was a light at the end of the tunnel versus this, I'm in a consistent waiting game. Right. Of, I feel I can only plan three months out. And that year prior in 2019, I felt that I got a little bit more comfortable with planning four, five, six months out versus that regimen and three month schedule. And I felt like that got yanked out from under me. And I was devastated and I did not see this as good news. And it was just a whirlwind of emotions. And I think that was the first time that I let the reality of my situation consume me. In the past, I had, you go through all these buzzwords as when you go through a certain challenge. And especially, we, I know Nikki and I have heard this repeatedly, is you're so strong, you're so brave, you went, you're an inspiration, all of this. If it was me, I don't think I'd be handling it as well. And in my head, it's, well, what other option is there? Do I let this just take over my body? No, I'm young. I want to live. Like, I this isn't, yeah. But uh, thankfully, the type of cancer I had at a certain point would have gone to a death statement. But at that time, it was very much controllable and manageable. And I was, when I got my news, everybody was so happy and was like, we were praying for this and all just different sentiments that I could never connect with 
mm-hmm. especially on the you're so strong. It's like, I can't connect with that because this is the only option in my mind. But I ended up going to therapy and I'm still in therapy. I'm going about once a month now, but it's been incredibly nice to talk with an unbiased third party and just get their perspective. And she has helped me with this um, understanding from my parents' perspective, what they were going through and how they take the news. And and it also worked out pretty perfectly that I started seeing her and then a pandemic happened. So we worked through all of that. And yep. oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's essentially my story. I'm still on still on watch. I go back and exactly a month from today. So a month is October 28th. Sweet. We're going to be like the exact same time. My next pet is like that week. Whoa. Oh, Ah! (laughs) only an interesting one. Yeah. But it's to the point now where it's like before every scan and everything, I just hope and pray that my tumor regrows so I can get this over with now versus prolonging it and yeah everything and I know that's I should I feel guilty about that but because there are people out there um that this was just sprung on them and they don't want this news and I didn't want this news and it's but it's just something that I like struggle with as it's almost like kind of survivor's guilt, which I know is another topic that we wanted to touch on, but at a later date, but it's, it's going, Mm -hmm. it's, it's very much in full force, but it's kind of weird grappling with the fact that I'm tumor free and not cancer free. And so anytime there's uh, one of the organizations I support is head for the cure. And anytime there's uh, a walk or a fundraiser or anything, they always kind of break them up into, are you a participant or have you been affected um, from a, like affected by a loved one getting brain cancer or something. And then the other one is like, they call them survivors, but it's also like the people who are actively going through it and everything. But I feel weird kind of like putting myself into that category, even though I am technically going through it still it just it doesn't feel like it because it's in it's like one day at a time like every three months yeah but it's weird it's a what a wild ride (laughs) what a wild ride oh well thank you for sharing all of that yeah and I mean I want to validate that feeling of yeah it's like you're you're looking forward to an answer because no one Mm -hmm. wants to live in limbo and even though the answer is like still a shitty reality that'll mm-hmm. consume close to a year of your life it's like okay I know that's like you know the enemy you know versus the enemy you don't know the waiting right? yeah 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 and like so when I do have to go through treatment and everything it'll be six weeks of radiation and then nine and a half months of chemo and it'll be like six weeks six rounds um and I won't have to do something every day or anything. It's, I'm just going to be put on three different drugs, two are orally and then one's intravenous. But I think what the most frustrating thing about it, and I think I just realized this now as we're talking, is being 
with an engineering background and having that analytical mindset, there is still so much unknown with in the world of cancer, like no matter what type you have, but I've felt that a lot with my diagnosis because my doctor is repeatedly tells me, oh, there's new research coming out every day about it. Like what, what affects it, like how, like what, what treatments work and everything like that. But I was just like, in my head, I'm like, look, I got a diagnosis. Like, give me the treatment. Do it today. Yeah. Yeah. Do it today. Like it, it, it just, it's so frustrating not knowing. Yeah. Can understand that. I mean, I'm in <laughs> different shoes, but I do want to yeah. know that because that's, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Scary. Yeah. But more stories will come out along Ugh. our time, but we have so I many that was, stories to tell. Yeah. But it, I feel like that was a pretty condensed one since like the last one I, uh, the last time I told this, it was like over an hour it and was 15 minutes. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, especially, I think this is perfect because this is like, here's the overview, here's mm-hmm. the timeline and all those details. I think we'll get into it. I mean, even I think of, you know, what led us to go to doctors, we had very different things, but I think we both had, you know, clues that kind of took us there. It's not like we mm-hmm. had some big dramatic, we fainted and mm-hmm. found this, you know, so mm-hmm. we can even get into that. But I mean, I think that's, it's crazy. It's insane. Yeah. And yeah. Thank you for sharing it. Well, of course. And <sighs> it's just, it's, what are the odds? <laughs> Can you believe this? I mean, like, truly, I know we gave the one sentence about this in the intro, but we're college roommates, right? So we went to a school of, I don't know, 40. 50, yeah, 40, 50,000. Yeah. Also 40. Probably yeah. what, 20,000 undergrads at least? Yeah. It, like, if not more, I think it's more around, yeah, something higher, but probably higher than that. And we joined the same sorority coming from totally different places. Mm-hmm. We didn't meet till we got into the sorority. Mm-hmm. And then we became roommates. I guess mm-hmm. we didn't share a room in the DD house, house, but yeah. you know, we were basically roommates. We lived, we still shared a wall for two years. Yeah. Years. And like to think that we both would end up with this insane yeah diagnosis and like so a third of different. our yeah a third of our friend group like oh my God. I know and it's it's so insane you know I've said it before and I'll say it again it's like clearly I don't think either of us feel lucky about the situations we're in I don't think that either of us are at a place where it's like actually I'm grateful for this diagnosis because I, I don't feel that way no I'm, no I'm not, no to be honest um no. I don't know if I ever will but I mean the fact that we're able to talk to each other about it and mm-hmm. like talk to the world about it mm-hmm. and I think have the friends and the families that we do who mm-hmm. you know showed up for us yeah um, and continue to do so I think that we're really lucky to to have that and oh I'm just so glad I have you because oh yeah I don't know what the fuck I would do if I was <laughs> in my own feelings about all of this for years at a time can you imagine I'd be losing oh, it oh man yeah, no, and I can't emphasize enough how important it is to have that strong support system around you, like what Nikki touched on, just the fact that we have great families, we have great friends, whether they're from college or from hometowns or from work or whatever, however you made the friends. It's honestly like, I know I feed off of the energy of others, and so even though I am 
a very extroverted person. <laughs> I, I, it, it does help to be around, around people. And so having that strong support system around you really does do wonders for yeah. morale. And just, I always think about like having people who know me for me. Mm-hmm. And so even when you're in the thick of like this crazy shit that like any outsider would never wish on their enemies and like mm-hmm. people who don't know you are like, oh, poor thing. You're so strong. You're so inspirational. All of that. Like it almost feels like baby talk. I mean, I know that's not the appropriate. It's like a cop out term. of, oh, yeah. like, how do I talk with you? Oh, you have cancer. Exactly. Whereas like our friends are like able to just roast us while we're still in the middle of oh, treatment. Exactly. And it's like, that's what I need. This is how I'm maintaining myself during yeah. this, you know? I, mean, I don't need people tiptoeing around. I need, exactly. I need the roast. <laughs> yeah, I need people to be real with me. And uh, yeah, I always think about that, how lucky we are to have, you know, that group of people who do that, because I think it's, it's awesome in mm-hmm. these insane experiences to, to feel like yourself, you know? I mean, we'll both go through it, but you had the aphasia where, like, you can't communicate like you usually do, and part oh, of you yeah. doesn't look like it did for a little bit, you know? And, like, you're, you're feeling these differences, and I had, you know, some some common, some different kind of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. symptoms. And so for someone to like know you for you and not let all the other stuff get in the way of them seeing you, I think is, is helpful. Yeah. And I think when I was going through it too, I was very cautious of who I let see that of me because yeah. I didn't want it to change their perception of who I am as a person when I am quote unquote in normal life. And it, it honestly distanced me from some people to the point where my parents were just kept pushing me being like, why don't you go hang out with this person? Why don't you talk with this person? Have this person come over. And I was even distanced from my phone and didn't really want to text or talk or anything. And it was, it was, it was wild, (laughs) but no, I think this is a great, I I like it. I like that we're doing this and I hope that it bypasses whoever needs it and maybe take some tips, tricks, and just hopefully it's entertaining for I know. everybody and everyone. <laughs> I hope so. We'll be, I guess our promise is that we'll be brutally honest and oh yeah, we'll try we to be We will funny. not sugarcoat things. We will not sugarcoat it. And hopefully we'll, it's interesting, you know? I mean, I, I hope that people who are in these experiences can relate and find some, you know, solace or tips and tricks or whatever, but yeah, I hope that even people who really aren't anywhere near someone with cancer mm-hmm. it could be identify or learn something yeah like any challenge that you're going through whether it's a shit you're having a shitty day mm-hmm. or I don't know your dog died or something but yeah whatever any, is turning your life upside down on that day yeah 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 but no that's our that's our goal with this oh uh, well thank you again for sharing and do you want to take us out sure <laughs> Thank y'all so much for listening. And next week we'll have Nikki's story. And we just want you to go out into the world and spread joy. Hell yeah. (laughs) Bye. Bye. This podcast is recorded and edited by Nikki Steltenkamp and Emily Sweet using GarageBand. Our song is Wildcard from GarageBand, and our cover art is by Jazz Parker. Talk to you next time.